Right, and we're joined via Zoom by American author Charles Dunst to discuss his book, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman Defeating the Dictators. Uh, Charles, uh, very good morning, U.S. time. Thanks for having me on. Um, I just, uh, five minutes ago, I put a, a statement to my listeners and said I would be prepared to surrender some of my dem- democratic freedoms in order to live in a country that works. I've got at the moment well over a hundred answers and of those four say no. The others all say yes or absolutely yes or yes, please. How soon? Which I mean, I speaks, it speaks to the dilemma you identify in your book. Absolutely. It speaks to the crux of the problem at hand and essentially to why I wrote why I wrote the book. And of course, there are different levels of functionality across the democratic world. So talking about South Africa versus the United States versus Malaysia, there, there are varieties of, well, how functional are those governments? But as your poll indicates, and as more, uh, more more rigorous polling in the U.S. indicates, there are a substantial number of people who, as your listeners have said, would happily give up some democratic freedoms for better roads, for a better social safety net, for just a sense of the government being able to actually deliver and get things done, whether that is in South Africa or the United States. And I think that's fueled by this notion of people looking at the governments of, of even China, but really Singapore, the United Arab Emirates, and people go there and say, oh, my God, look at how things are being done so fast. Look at how seemingly incorrupt, incorruptible the officials are. Look at how they're able to address the problems of the future, like climate change, whereas we're kind of struggling. So that is the problem at hand. And it is why I wrote the book to kind of offer a bunch of, uh, of solutions that I think are realistic in different countries certain solutions are more likely in certain countries but i did try very hard to make sure we're, we're not so much lamenting the problem anymore but thinking about how to fix it so the, the example in africa is is rwanda which i visited on on many occasions and it is an extremely functional country and uh, south africans who go there on business or on holiday to see the gorillas or whatever the case may be they come back and they go wow Rwanda and Rwanda is notionally a democracy in that they have elections but effectively it's an autocracy yeah absolutely and I think that's a very prime example that you're talking about whereas for for much of Asia that example is Singapore or for much of the Middle East that answer is Abu Dhabi or Dubai or maybe Riyadh and it does get to this problem of people feeling as if well Get rid of the messy politics that are, that's the kind of natural to democracy. Get rid of the nasty elections. Just kind of bring in this strong man and he'll fix everything. And I would say, I mean, obviously, as someone who wrote a book arguing for democracy, I think that perception is wrong. I think that perception is a bit fanciful and rooted in this notion that, well, every every dictator is going to be like Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew or is going to be like Kagame and basically able to kind of do things really effectively. But when you remove the guardrails of a democratic system, you remove the checks and balances on decision making, you're basically trusting that that dictator, that that strongman is going to always have the best interests in mind. And history shows that is very rarely the case. Lee Kuan Yew is really the only exception here of someone who truly did govern in the name of his people and for his people and left the country better than he found it. 
with really minimal corruption. Uh, he certainly was repressive, but most Singaporeans, I think, if you had a free and fair election, would probably say, yep, we, we're, we're fine with that government. So I think it's important to make sure that in 99.9% of cases in all of human history, despots have not delivered good governance. But that's just complaining about that and stating that is obviously not enough to fix the problem. Is part of the problem is that democracy, uh, the democracies don't don't give their citizens what their citizens want and need. And increasingly over the 30 years, last 30 years or so, as the number of democracies have declined and the number of autoc- autocracies have gone up, um, it, that has been increasingly true, that democracy is often not very good for the people who are being supposedly democratically ruled. I think the way I've talked about this before is faith in democracy isn't the problem. Faith in democracy's automatic functioning is the problem. Whereas we can kind of sit back and you know, ruling intelligentsias and Washington or Westminster or South Africa kind of sit behind and say, well, we're just going to expect everything to go fine and everything will work because we're a democracy. And of course, democracy is better. And I think that was this kind of notion that took hold really after the fall of the Soviet Union that said, well, the only other real competitor to our system failed. So now our system's the only one left. So of course it will just work. And that basically fueled this kind of laziness that I think allowed us to basically sit back and let our democracies decline. I mean, there is no question that if when you look at polling and you look at just basic numbers is, are our democracies working as well as they were 10 to 15 years ago? Even when you think about the most powerful democracies, even when you think about Germany or the United States or even South Korea and Japan or those countries operating as functionally as they were 10 to 15 years ago? And the answer in just about all those cases is no. And I think the problem there is not democracy in itself. Democracy has proven itself really resilient over and over again and has shown that we can rise up to kind of beat challenges of the day and we can do great things both at home and abroad. It's just making sure that we're actually focused on it and we're actually thinking about ways to do it, which is really why I wrote the book, to think about things like meritocracy, accountability, trust in government, human capital, all these things that are going to be really vital for good governance in, in the 21st century and beyond, both for autocracies and democracies. And currently, it does seem like the China, the, Sing- the Chinas, the Singapores, the Saudi Arabias of the, the world. Vietnam is another country. Vietnam, another country that you look at. I mean, here in South Africa... Democracy really is working only for a very thin slice of the politically connected. And part of our problem and part of the problem for democracy is, as you said, not democracy, but it's it's our involvement in democracy. And we have more and more people exiting the democratic process, not even bothering to register to vote. And if they are registered to vote more and more in subsequent elections, not going to vote. And one of the organizations that I'm covering in South Africa is an organization called Mzanzi, which is another name for South Africa, Mzanzi Rise. Mm-hmm. And, and it is about getting, getting the stakeholder groups, which are important and which are significant in a democratic environment, to re-engage with the democratic project and take it back from those who are undermining the idea in order to, you know, to make themselves rich and powerful. Well, absolutely. And I think what concerns me, and I mentioned in the book, is this notion of a mistrust loop, where people don't trust their government because they think that government's not working. They think their democratic government's not working. So as you said, they kind of tune out. They stop listening to that government, they stop engaging, and they stop voting. 
And when people across the country are so disconnected from their governments because they're not voting, you're going to basically have a government that's even less able to provide for them because government officials, politicians are, are not mind readers. They can't serve a population from which they have grown distant. So when people don't trust the government and accordingly opt out of civic participation, the result is this mistrust loop in which a distrustful public is disengaged, resulting in a government even more disconnected from the public, which leads only to a further deterioration of trust. So I think it is really, really key, as you're pointing out, that even when we're down on democracy, even when we feel like our systems aren't working or our favorite politicians aren't winning, that we don't sit out and say, well, it's all broken. I don't need to vote anymore because voting does matter. I know it's a cliche, but in voting is really, really important to helping to rebuild that trust in government and voting, but also participating in government on a local level. Every country, of course, has a different system for what that looks like. It looks very different in the United States than in South Africa. But making sure people are actually engaging with just with their towns or their city councils or making sure you're thinking about, well, what can I do to actually have a positive impact on the government rather than sitting back and saying it's so broken, I don't, I don't want to participate. Because when more and more people stop participating, you're going to lose trust in government. And without trust, democracy is really at risk. You know, I look at what's happening in America at the moment. For example, um, uh, conservatives are are going down to grassroots. You know, they accept that um, the elite is up there and what they're doing is taking over um, school governance boards and so on so that they can uh, so they can make sure that only the kind of teaching is done in schools that uh, subscribe to to their values. And so sometimes getting involved in democracy at a grassroots level um, is to obtain a particular agenda, but the, isn't that democracy? If 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 I if I utilize the instruments of democracy in order to establish my worldview as the dominant one in the governance at local or regional or national level, that's democratic. I think that is democratic. I think the only question of when it becomes undemocratic is when if he, if that majoritarian rule at the local level is just violating people kind of basic rights of saying, well, my, my role, my agenda conflicts with your basic human rights. That is no longer democratic. But certainly, at, I live in Virginia, and we had our, our governor, maybe who took office about a year ago, that is essentially why he won in what has essentially been a blue state for a while, a democratic state for a while. He's a Republican and said, you know, I want to take back control of the schools. I want to stop the, the liberal, the so-called liberal elites from teaching crazy things in the schools. I want to make sure that parents have to have a kind of an input in what's being taught to their kids. And that's really, really popular. And I don't think that's illiberal. I don't think that's anti-democratic. I think it's actually an example of how in the United States, the conservatives have probably been more effective at capturing local governments in a, I mean, in a totally democratic way to put in place policies that liberals don't like, whether on, on a variety of social issues. Whereas I do kind of think the Democrats have basically decided that their power resides in Washington or maybe New York and don't think so much about local governance. But local governance is where most things get done. I mean, most people's perception of their government is, it, are the trash collectors coming on time? Uh, are my taxes being filed on time? Really basic things. And I think one helpful anecdote here of the state of kind of distrust of government in the United States is when there's political science studies that show this, when Americans get good public service. So good one example is during the, the COVID pandemic, when in New York, they rolled out the vaccinations really fast and really rapidly and really effectively. 
when people receive effective government service like that, they immediately turn around and think that the private sector must have been involved. Americans can never credit their government for doing anything effective because there is this notion of the government being slow and sclerotic, which kind of gets to some other solutions I had in the book of, of making sure we governments work with private sector because people actually trust the private sector more. But I think it's really important. Yeah. It's a reminder of the need to engage on a local level. Charles, it's been absolutely fascinating listening. And folks, this really is an extremely interesting and I think important book to read. I've been talking to Charles Dunst about his book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. The surname is D-U-N-S-T, Charles Dunst.